Welcome to Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur turned 51-year-old mom of a fifth grader. But no matter what stage and age I am, I always feel happier when I'm learning, growing, and connecting. And when I find amazing things that help me learn, grow, and connect, I naturally want to share. This is an episode in a special series about women, midlife, and menopause. My goal is to help women understand, learn, and handle the changes we experience as we age. We're obviously very different emotionally and physically at 51 than we were at 21 or 31 or 41 even. I just so happen to be in the perimenopausal stage of life. It's so lovely. So much of this series focuses on what happens during the transition before, during, and after menopause. Today, you will hear our version of the Girlfriend's Guide to Menopause and Hormone Replacement Therapy, otherwise known as HRT. Our guest, Mary Jane Minkin, is possibly the best suited person to speak on this subject, and I'm going to tell you why. She is a practicing gynecologist who's been teaching at the Yale University School of Medicine for over 41 years. She has ridden the menopause roller coaster, experiencing society's many changing beliefs and recommendations over the past 40 plus years. She's treated thousands of women to help them find hormone relief. She's written seven books on the subject, some of which are handbooks and guidebooks themselves. So today's going to be really fun. And she's been through menopause herself. Plus, she's excited to share what she's learned. She doesn't hold back. She wants to help kick the stigma around menopause. She's awesome, and you're going to love her. But before you get to hear from the amazing Dr. Mary Jane Minkin, I can't wait to share the latest and greatest from our sponsor, Inside Tracker. Just like Dr. Minkin, Inside Tracker shares the same goal. They want to help you maximize your health at every age and stage of your life. As you know, I've now done multiple blood draws with them. I've done a DNA test. Um, it is an awesome service. Everything is just so easy. Things that you didn't think could be at your fingertips are. How cool is that? All you need to do is head over to insidetracker.com backslash run this world for 20% off their entire site. Um, what you need to know is actually quite outlined a couple episodes ago when we analyzed my own blood and guts with one of the amazing Inside Tracker RDs. Um, it's a really empowering service to learn about your body from the inside. All you need to do is go to their website, insidetracker.com backslash run this world. Choose a test that feels right for you or choose more than one. You can choose the inner age and add it on. You can choose the DNA, DNA test and add it on. Um, and if you don't live near a site where they're going to do the blood draw, you can have somebody come right to your home. It's super easy. I've done it twice now. It's awesome. All right, everybody. One more time. That's insidetracker.com backslash run this world for 20% off their entire site. Do it now. 
All right, let's get on with the show and let's welcome Mary Jane Minkin. Mary Jane Minkin, I am so excited to have you on the show. I'm calling you my badass estrogen veteran. Do you like it? Nicole, it's a great term and I thank you for asking me to be with you. And uh, I take that as a compliment. It is. And I mean, obviously, there's there's many ways that estrogen will be like infused in the conversation today. But you are just such an expert on all things women. And this series that I'm doing on menopause is so needed that I just couldn't believe my good luck when you actually got back to me from my cold email. I was like, something is aligning today. So thank thank you you much for for writing. And uh, it's always a pleasure to meet a fellow enthusiast. (laughs) For sure. Um, You know, I first discovered you when I was listening to our mutual friend Celine Yeager's Hit Play, Not Pause podcast, which is all about the aging woman and menopause and all the stuff we go through. And she recorded one of her first ever episodes. She titled Happy Vaginas. And it featured you. And I was like, this is the coolest title of a podcast I've ever heard. And um, and you just you talked you guys talked about everything under the sun. Um, and so listening to that, it led me to your website, which is called Madam Ovary. I love that too. You're so creative. And you're you gotta keep well, it fun. That's that. it's, it's just what do you call a gynecologist who minored in French in college? It's very easy. <laughs> that is so true. Oh my gosh. Well, so I'm, you know, you're kind of in like my subconscious here. And then someone forwarded me the recent brilliant New York Times article, which was written by uh, Susan Dominus. If you haven't read it, you need to look it up. And it was this amazing article. Actually, my husband is currently reading it. And I'm very happy about that because he's gaining more compassion every evening. Um, and this article like debunked some really long held myths about menopause and included a lot of very powerful quotes from experts in the field, one of which was you. And I was like, okay, boom, 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 three hits. I got to reach out to Mary Jane. And I realized when you got back to me that you know so much and you've been practicing in this field for so long that we should literally title this The Girlfriend's Guide to Menopause and HRT and just hit it. Well, thank you. It's it's too kind of you to say that. That's lovely. And I I hope I can be helpful. One of I I can give you a little of my background of why I like to to chat about these things. Yes, do. Aren't too many fictitious or fictional whatever gynecologists in literature but I think the most famous one is in John Irving's Cider House Rules. Now, of course, it's about his grandfather, uh, who was uh, the physician-in-chief of the Boston Lying in Hospital in the turn of the 19th to 20th century. So it really has historical background you know, in there. And unfortunately, his grandfather uh, had to take care of many women with septic abortions and things like that, which is why John Irving himself having been raised, you know, by his grandfather, is so devoted to the cause of Planned Parenthood and things like that. And, you know, he gave his Oscar for writing the screenplay for Cider House Rules to Planned Parenthood. He donated it to them, which I thought was really nice to do. So he's he's a good proponent of us OBGYNs. And Wilbur Larch, who's his grandfather's fi- fictional name, whatever, in Cider House Rules, one of his mottos is, I must be of use. 
And I've always looked at that as my motto. I must be of use. So any way I can be of use, I'd like to be that. (laughs) Well, you are. You're going to be that today. And, you know, before we actually just dive into this, like, girlfriend's guide. And by the way, you've written, I don't know, seven, eight, nine books, some of which are titled The Guide or Handbook to Menopause. So I'm really just like, you know, piggybacking on what you've already done. Um, I think I want to personalize this a little bit. Let's add a little more depth to the voice on the other end here and talk a little bit about you. Because whenever I hear interviews with you, we don't learn too much about you and your background. And I am a curious person. I would like to know. So, you know, today and for many years, you've been practicing medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Is that correct? True. I started in medical school in 1971 and I just never left. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I love that. Um, So prior even to, you know, practicing medicine, did you grow up always knowing and believing that you would have a greater purpose and that you would need to be of use? (laughs) I I always thought I needed to be of use. I mean, that I think I can say. Um, when I was a little kid, um, I, I always wanted to be a doctor. I mean, I don't know. I, there weren't any doctors in the family, but I liked my pediatrician, uh, very cool people and the whole practice. And uh, so, and I like little kids. So I figured I'll just be a pediatrician. That's fine. Um, as far as my scientific bent though, um, I was interested in lots of stuff, but I think one event that probably shaped me more than anything else uh, and I remember the day I, we lived in New York when I was five years old and I was going to kindergarten in New York City. And I remember standing in our apartment and on the radio where they were talking about this thing that went up into space, this Sputnik thing. And, and I remember asking my mommy, I said, what's that? You know, what are they talking about? And she said, oh, they sent this rocket up into space and this space capsule. And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Um, and the reason I say that was probably the hallmark moment in my life is because at that point, it was okay for girls to become scientists. Really, prior to that, there wasn't much use for us. But once it was okay that we needed, we needed, once the space race was on, all hands on deck became the rule. So I think it really is the, the one event that legitimized women going into scientific endeavors. Uh, I mean, I didn't think about it in that when I was five years old, but I was like, well, that's cool. That's interesting. But I was starting school at that point. And so it was okay whether the subtle or less subtle forces were out there legitimizing women's interest in science because it was all hands on deck. Let's do what you can. Wow. I, I mean, I, that, that really feels powerful to me because I still think in the seventies and sixties that you know, girls did not feel like they could do anything, but something within you saw that as differently, read that differently and decided you could do anything. Yeah, it was okay. It was wise. I love <laughs> so it. That was fine. I love that. Okay. So then let's just say you, so you, without getting into like too many rabbit holes early on here, you ended up going to college. I think you went to Brown University, right? Yes, and then you decided you were going to pursue medicine after all. So we're at that point, were you thinking I'm going to be a pediatrician? Well, I was, I really probably given up my pediatric practice at that point. <laughs> I went to medical school pretty undecided. However, yeah. if anything, uh, when I was at Brown, um, I worked with a bunch of fabulous, fabulous internal medicine people, hematologists. They were just terrific. Um, and, uh, they, 
basically, and, and, and when I was a kid at Brown, it was a very scientific place. Everybody had their own lab. You know, we all had our own labs. And I was like, I thought that was normal that all kids had their own labs. You know, it's fine. So I worked at Miriam Hospital in the hematology lab. And uh, when it came time to, you know, my, my research results and stuff like that, my mentors sent me to uh, Europe to present the paper at a hematology meeting. Wow. So I was a kid graduated from college and I went to present at the Second International Congress on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Um, and it was fun. <laughs> Uh, I had a good time. We used lantern slides at that point. You know, none of this even carousel slides and certainly none of this, you know, PowerPoint. What's that? You know, but it was fun. And uh, so if anything, I would have thought, oh, maybe I'll become a hematologist or something like that because that was cool. So I went off to medical school, pretty much open-minded as far as what I, what career I wanted to pursue other than the fact to be medical. Wow. Okay. So... At what point then, and what triggered your desire to focus on women's health? Well, I guess I was a woman. I figured that part out. Um, and I started on my OBGYN rotation. We started on our rotations in the middle of our second year of medical school. So I did my first gynecology rotation in the spring of my second year of medical school, so end of the second year of medical school. And it was fabulous. It was just terrific. I loved every minute of it. And I was really treated royally. Everybody was really kind to me. I had no discrimination against me, if anything, discrimination in favor of me because the most senior surgeon in the department liked to have women in the OR. And he wasn't a dirty old man or anything like that. He just, he had five daughters and he liked women to be, to become people. And uh, so I was treated royally and I really became a full member of the department as a second year medical student. <laughs> That's Absolutely crazy. That's so cool. Were you the only female following this track in like your class? Well, no, actually, there were about five, four or five of us that went into OBGYN. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, and then not, not girls, you know, not, not of the women in the class. There were two, two women in the class that went into OBGYN. Um, yeah, it's just two of us, but it was fine. Uh, and it was just a lot of fun. And that's what I decided I was going to do. And everybody was nice to me. And our department was also very helpful that we actually at that point probably had the best OBGYN department in the country. So I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, for example, the standard text in, in gynecological endocrinology, which is ultimately what I ended up probably doing, although I didn't do a specialty fellowship, um, was a book called Spear Off Glass and Case, and it was called Clinical Gynecological Endocrinology. And yes, I have my first edition signed by my mentors. Those are my teachers. So the, the book in clinical gynecological endocrinology is, was my book. And these were what these people told me to do. So that's what I did. <laughs> wow. Okay. So when you started to actually treat patients, was it like, was it very validating? And like your, your practice has evolved or you have evolved to be considered one of the leading experts on menopause. But I'm sure when you started practicing, you were just treating women for OBGYN type issues. Well, it's very kind of you to say leading expert. I just, I like the topic. That's all. I uh, fun doing it. Um, no, I just became, I, I, I was really a generalist when I came out in practice. I was in a general OBGYN practice and I did a lot of obstetrics. I did more obstetrics than I did gynecology because young people tend to, you tend to get older with your patients. So and what's the so difference? As far as obstetrics, obstetrics versus gynecology, yeah. Obstetrics basically is dealing with, you know, people, you know, helping get pregnant or whatever if they have any issues. That's all. It's technically gynecology there. 
and we work on them getting pregnant and then we take them through their pregnancy and take care of them postpartum and then maybe take care of keep them from getting pregnant for a while if we need contraception and then getting them pregnant again. <laughs> uh, and then eventually they'll stop having babies and then we'll start dealing with other issues of as we get older. So we get older with our patients and uh, it became clear to me. And even and the other thing, though, that I, I really did have a significant benefit for is, although, yes, I did a lot of obstetrics, I actually did a fair amount of gynecology because I was the first young woman to go into practice in New Haven, Connecticut. There were several women from the older generation, women in their 60s, um, who had done some GYN, but I was the first young woman. So I had lots of people who were interested in coming to visit me. And it was interesting because my my senior partner who hired me actually was doing something sort of, uh, sort of I'm looking for uh, as an experiment in a sense, hiring me. Because many people said to him, do you really think women would want to go to a woman gynecologist? No, it's just true. Honestly, God's true. And he was like, yeah, she's, she's a good doc, you know, whatever. She'll, she'll see patients, you know, be fine. <laughs> and we didn't view it as anything special one way or the other. But we realized very shortly that uh, women, a lot of women like to see women gynecologists. But at the time, it was like, I think a woman would come to see a female gynecologist. Wow, because I feel like it's so the opposite today. Oh, yes, it is very different today. But in my, when I started the residency, there had been one woman in the class ahead of me who finished, a um, lovely woman named Mary Lake Poland, um, who went, went on to become chairman at Stanford. And she's now back at Yale, sort of an American, emeritus professor sort of thing. Um, but uh, I was in the second group, and that's, you know, this, this was a new species, something like that showing up. <laughs> you know, and it's so crazy, too, because I, I have no idea if this is actually accurate, but I feel like most of the time in our lives, our own experience helps us to become better often at the things we do. And men don't have vaginas, and they don't, they don't have... <laughs> you know, female reproductive parts. And so how can they fully relate? And especially they can't have children, meaning birth them, and they don't go through menopause. These are things that you did. So along the way, you also had two children, right? Yes, I have two kitties. Yes. <laughs> yes, I know because I Google stalked you and I think they may be in their 30s now. At least that's what one of the articles said. Um <laughs> And um, and so I thought, well, that's got to have helped, you know, like inform you with your practice. And I'm assuming because you told me you're 70 that you've been you're on the other side, you're postmenopausal. Absolutely. <laughs> and so that has to have helped as well. And so part of me is like, wow, I wonder what kind of patient you were through all of your, you know, same issues that you treat in other people. Sometimes the doctor's the worst patient, right? No, I, I did. A, well, I did one bad thing as a doctor is as being a patient. And I can tell you this. Um, when I was being induced with my first child, because I still would probably be pregnant with my kids if I didn't get induced. I always say that I've been, I've been the world's longest gestation. But and we also refer to my daughter. I love my children dearly. But um, um, my daughter, we oftentimes refer to her name as Allie or Allegra. And we refer to her as the Princess Allegra. So when I was pregnant with the Princess Allegra, um, that. <laughs> I, I, the blood was busy. The labor floor was busy. So I was thought I'd just push up the Pitocin on the machine myself because they were tied up and it needed to go up. So I clicked it up a little bit. And unfortunately, I think I ended my IV a little bit. So we had a little bit of blood spilling on the floor. <laughs> I was like, I, I was like, 
and you guys are busy, you know what? My gosh, you self-birthed. You tried to. That is so funny. They were tied up. I thought I'd help things along. But I love it. Well, can do you usually share your own menopause story or is that something you keep most of us? Yeah. I had the world's easiest menopause. Wow. <laughs> I want to hear this. People need to hear this because they all some people are afraid, you know, scared to death and they need to know that there's a whole range of ways that this Absolutely. thing can go. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean I don't feel bad for people who have lousy menopause situations because I see plenty of those. Uh, but mine was very easy because I was on birth control pills forever. Um, and I was doing great and fine, but I had the world's easiest situation. Menopausal histories tend to run in families. So I'm a, I have an experimental situation in my family, which is perfect. My sister is two years younger than I am. And at age 50, she went through menopause and she, she's a equal natural, et cetera, person and take meds. So I said, gee, my sister's two years younger than I am and she's menopausal. And of course, while you're on a birth control pill, you can't tell where you are. You're your body sees the hormones, the pill, and it's fine. So I was chugging along with my periods and stuff. And I said, well, gee, maybe I'll stop the pill and see where I am because that's indeed what you have to do. You cannot see if you're menopausal while you are on a birth control pill. You have to go off the pill, be off the pill for at least a month or so to see what's going on. After about a month, I got my hot flashes and stuff and no period. And I said, oh, I guess I'm menopausal. So I went and had a couple of blood tests to verify it. So having my share of high flashes and stuff. And I said, fine, okay, now I can start my hormone replacement therapy, which I did. And that was it. So I had a couple of hot flashes for a while because this time, this month, I was off the pill. <laughs> and they were not pleasant. I can understand. I, I got enough hot flashes to realize how unpleasant they can be for my patients. And I said, that's fine. I understand it. <laughs> and then I went on hormones. So that's fine. Wow. That is Okay. So, but here's the thing. Those are all, that's all really important stuff. And I actually think maybe we should just jump right into our girlfriend's guide of menopause and HRT featuring Dr. Mary Jane Minkin. Um, so now we know a bit about you. I, uh, I think what would be cool for people listening is I've, I've done a lot of content on this topic, but I've not just laid it all out and done it in one place. So let's talk it through. Okay. Sure. You've seen. Right hundreds, thousands of patients over the years. Um, you've, you are also someone who keeps very up to date on all the latest research. I've heard you cite all kinds of stuff. So whatever comes out with any of these questions, just go wherever your energy is taking you. Okay. All right. So I'm going to pretend I am the uh, perimenopausal woman right now. So my first question is, when will I know if I am perimenopausal? Um, a year after you don't have a menstrual period, you'll figure it out. It's, it's what I call a retrospective diagnosis. Mm. And there are a lot of things that people can experience with perimenopause. Now, there are some women who go chug, 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 you know, regular periods, stop and never get another period. That's about 7%. Wow. 3%. All bets are off. And what you can start getting symptomatology even before you skip one menstrual period. Which you may not associate with perimenopause because lots of things can happen. Periods are different. So you might get a few flashes. You might not sleep well for a couple of nights. You occasionally will experience some vaginal dryness, maybe some bladder symptoms, all the fabulous things that can happen with menopause. Um, but you may not attribute it to perimenopause. Um, average age at menopause is 51 to 52 range. Perimenopause begins ballpark, say, five years ahead of it, but it's hard to say. You get may start 
seven, eight years, it may start less than. So, and again, if you're doing this early, because again, about 1% of women are menopausal by age 40. So there are some people in that category. And when I give the lecture to my medical students, I say to the kids, I say, all the girls get all nervous here when I start talking about this. Um, but, you know, people can get perimenopausal symptoms in their 30s. And they won't, most of them will not recognize it as perimenopausal. Um, you know, they may get a wacky period or they may get some heat or they may not sleep so well. Um, you know, subtle symptoms. And at the age of 38 or 39, they're not going to think this is perimenopause. Why should they? I mean, that's something that 50-year-old ladies, do. I mean, they're not going to be thinking about it. And what I try to teach my medical students is that I want them to be able to think about perimenopause as in the what we call differential diagnosis. When somebody comes into you with a, with a problem, you should say, okay, it could be this, it could be this, it could be that. That's the differential diagnosis. And you evaluate the patient to see what it indeed is so you can guide her therapy. And so... And my standard line to the kids is I say, okay, a 36-year-old woman who comes in to see you and she may have skipped a period and she's not sleeping well at night and she's disturbed by what's going on. What do you think is the most likely diagnosis? And the right answer is pregnancy. Pregnancy is the right answer for everything. So basically anyone between 12 and 50, something at pregnancy, rule out pregnancy first. So you rule out pregnancy, she's not pregnant. Okay, what's your second most likely thing? Well, even I, as a menopause doc, am not going to say menopause. I mean, okay, I'm going to say thyroid dysfunction because that would be a heck of a lot more common problem. Thyroid disease is more common in women than it is in guys. And if she's, you know, not sleeping well, she's a little hot, skip the period, she's probably hyperthyroid. That's what's going on. And I check her thyroid function tests. Okay. All right. They're normal. Okay. But I still want you to think about it. <laughs> it's the second most likely diagnosis. Then I may say, well, gee, I wonder if she's early perimenopause. And I'll ask, when did mommy go through menopause or your aunts or things like Because menopause does tend to run in families. So if the mom tends to it with an early menopause, daughter will do it. And I'll oftentimes have somebody who's an early menopause patient say, you know, mom told me to expect that this is going to happen to me. Your mom's a smart lady. Um, so it, it's not absolute by any means, but there's a tendency, which is why when my sister went through menopause at age 50, I'm like, oh, I'm 52. Maybe I'm menopausal. Um, because it does tend to run in families. Um, so anyway, but the problem in diagnosing perimenopause, and this is a huge problem that women have to understand. There is no magic test for perimenopause. Now, why is that? Well, basically, if you look at a curve, and this is from Spiroff Glass and Case, my textbook that I was raised with, um, if you look at the hormone concentrations in a normal Jane Doe average menstrual cycle, okay, at the lowest level, which is right when you get our, when you get your period, the levels maybe 40 picograms per mil, maybe 50, something like that. Well, in the week before your period, your estradiol level is probably up to 300. 350 picograms per mil. That's a pretty wide variation. That's normal. Okay. So if you get a blood test, you know, and you go in and get a blood test and it says your blood level is 50 picograms per mil. Well, is that normal? Well, yeah, it's within the normal limits. But is it normal for where you are in the cycle? Well, I don't know where you really are in the cycle because you skipped the. <laughs> you know? So it's hard to say normal. Whereas thyroid, for example, is constant during the month, it's really very little variation. So I can look at a thyroid level and say, you know, that's a little high or that's a little low. But an estrogen level, I really can't say a lot unless it's exceptionally low or exceptionally high, which we occasionally see. So the problem is, and also it varies from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. So that's the problem. Your doctor isn't necessarily being mean and saying, you know, I'm not going to measure a level on you. 
I try to explain it to people why, I mean, if they want to waste their money and do it, it's fine. But, you know, in general, a blood test doesn't tend to help you a lot. You know, okay. Now there are a couple of other tests you can do. And I always point to parts of my anatomy. And I even point to my ovaries, even though they haven't done a damn thing in 20 years or whatever. <laughs> what I talk about my hypothalamus and my pituitary gland. And what happens is when the ovaries poop out, and you can't see me because we're on a Zoom, I mean, uh, you know, we're on a podcast here, but I'm pointing to my ovaries, and which haven't done anything. But the key thing is the ovaries are not turnips. They receive their marching orders from the pituitary gland in the brain. And so what happens is as the ovaries poop out, you know, okay, which is what menopause is, it's nothing fancy, it's just the pooping out of the ovaries. But what happens is the pituitary gland is turned on. And it's because it's not getting enough estrogen. And it's saying, guys, you're, you know, you're not doing your job. You're not making estrogen. Get to work. And how does the pituitary gland say to the ovaries, get to work? It dumps out a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone, which many of your listeners I'm sure have heard of FSH. And the FSH tends to go up. Okay. Because it's saying to the ovaries, come on, guys, you're pooping out. Let's do something. Can't do it. Doing nothing. So anyway. The problem is, though, if for two weeks your ovaries have been doing their thing, they woke up, oh, I'm okay, I'm working, the FSH might be normal and the estradiol might be normal, but that doesn't mean two weeks ago it wasn't normal, that it was pooping out. So it's a fluctuating process. And the other graph I draw on the board when I teach my kitties um, is I draw a graph of y-axis and the x-axis. Again, our listeners can't see it, but I'm drawing it up there anyway. Um, that it basically is a very jaggedy line going down. You know, okay. And what I tell my medical students, I say, and this is actually a graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in September 2008. And look at me like, what? And I'll say, well, it's going down. No question about it. It did that back then. And I said, but it's jaggedy. It's not a smooth curve, you know, okay? And your ovarian production in perimenopause is jagged. It goes down in a very rapid fashion. And your ovaries may be working great one day and not doing a damn thing the next. And the other tricky thing to understand is many patients come in complaining of breast discomfort in perimenopause. And I'm you know, like, why am my hormones are going down? Why am my breasts uncomfortable? Because estrogen can lead to breast discomfort. I do not think it leads to breast cancer, but it can lead to breast discomfort. And I'll say, well, what happened is your ovaries yesterday weren't doing a damn thing. And now they're doing double time on you. So your ovaries are getting a blast estrogen all of a sudden. You're like, oh, you know, and they're getting sore. They're getting sore. They're getting sore. And two days later, they may be back down to doing nothing. Um, so it's a jaggedy decline. It's still a decline, but it's jagged. Okay. Which explains most of the symptoms. But as far as diagnostics, it makes it terribly difficult to say to somebody, this is where you are. And oftentimes when patients have unusual complaints, whatever, I'm like, oh, it's going on, you know, work it up for obvious things. Um, and occasionally I'll do these hormones just to see if by any chance they're working. Um, most of the time they aren't, or many, much of the time they aren't. And about three or four years later, when the patient stopped having periods, I'll say, you know, I'll bet you back that. Remember when you had that three, four years ago? I'll bet that was the beginning part of perimenopause. Now we know. So I say it's a retrospective diagnosis much of the time. Yes. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that this whole thing is very gray. And oftentimes you don't know what you went through until you're past it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we rely on the people we live with, our partners, our spouses, even our kids, our parents, you know, whoever, to, you know, tell us like, hey, you're acting differently. You're looking differently. Like things are, but 
every single day things are changing a little bit and those people can't even often see it until you're it's really hit a climax or you're through it. So it's and the testing doesn't necessarily tell us that much. So it's a very, very hard thing to quite understand and grasp when you're going through it. So I would say this happened to me and it's happening to lots of my friends. I'm 51 right now, definitely having perimenopause symptoms. I am definitely like, you know, needing some kind of treatment probably pretty darn soon. And um, I, for about a year to two, have felt like I was crazy. Mm -hmm. I just don't feel like me. And that is not a black and white thing. That is not a measurable thing. That is us saying, I just don't feel like me. So, you know, if do you think that sounds like what you hear a lot of times in your patients, like something's just not right and I can't put my finger on it, but I'm experiencing X, Y and Z, not all the time, sometimes, you know, and I'm not sleeping well and I gained weight and I just feel crazy and I've become a huge bitch sometimes. And, you know, like things that you weren't before. I mean, if you're normally a huge bitch, then being a huge bitch isn't, I guess, a, a stretch. But like, it's so... So helping women through this, this is where your gift comes in, right? I'm not a gift, but I've taken care of a lot of ladies with it. So we figure out what to do for them. Well, that and that's just it. So the next question from me who, you know, say I, I'm in it. I'm actually just it's coming right from me right now then is how can I help my symptoms? Do can I do something or do I need to go see a doctor and they will help me do something or both? Well, you're doing a lot of it on your own because you're a very athletic person. You exercise pretty much every day, I think. Um, and that's probably the best thing you can do on your own. No question about it. Are you an athlete? Uh, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't, um, honor myself with those terms. I go to the gym almost every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am so, not the world's athletic person. But you know, I did read somewhere that you, you know, you move your body like you oh, are an exerciser. And um, I, your own story about menopause is really interesting because it was, I, I actually want to dig into like some of these different techniques that we can employ. And with you, you were on the pill and then you were kind of like, huh, I guess I'm in it. And, you know, so do you think that the lifestyle you were living during the time, in addition to being on the pill, helped you kind of stay ahead of the worst oh, sure. of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. And uh, I think exercise is great for everybody who can. Um, and whatever exercise you like is the best kind to do. You're going to keep doing it. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And so and I do think that people, and the other thing that I have to confess, this is true confessions time. Um, I always did a fair, well, actually when I was a little kid, I didn't do a lot of exercise. It was, you know, I was a smart girl. I was not supposed to exercise. That's for the dummies to do. And I, that's, if I ever, if I ever had one bad thing against my parents, I would say that's the worst thing that I, I was raised in a non-exercising household. But by the time I got to college, I figured out this was a pretty good thing to do. Um, but I did a lot of aerobic activities. I did nothing as far as strength training, none, zero. Um, and it wasn't until I got to about 58 or thereabouts, um, that People said, you know, you shouldn't make fun of people doing the strength training at the gym. And I said, you're right. They said, so start doing it and see if you can condemn them after that. And, and the problem is that I got hooked. I got addicted. Um, so I really became an avid strength trainer. 
And I won't say I spend as much time strength training as aerobics. I mean, if I have a limited amount of time, I will do my aerobics and, and the strength training will go on the back burner for a day or two. But what I can say that I learned okay. is that strength training gives a different aspect in the sense of well-being. And, and I describe it to my patients because they know me pretty well. And I'll say, you know, I'm brain dead. Now look at me like that. I said, well, I'm brain dead insofar as I don't think about stuff. I do stuff. I don't contemplate what I'm going to do. I do it. And so if I haven't had time to go to the gym to do my lifting um, for three, four days, whatever, I don't go in with a preconceived notion of, oh, I'm going to go do my strength training and feel better. No, I just go and do my strength training because I hadn't had time to do it for the last three, four days. And I'll come out and I say, oh, I feel good now. And then I'll say, oh, you idiot, you haven't been strength training for four days. Okay, that explains it. But I don't go in with a preconceived notion. So I'm just sort of brain dead. And so the thing is that you know, doing both gives you a different aspect. And there actually is animal data. And how they do these stupid things, I'm not really sure, but they put these rats on little like hamster wheels and stuff like that. <laughs> and they show that the rats who do the hamster wheel stuff are actually happier rats. I don't know how they figure this out. But anyway, but there is animal data to verify that athletic rats are feel better than non-athletic rats. That is amazing. They're probably like monitoring the uh, endorphins or something in their system. <laughs> but they do it. So anyway, so I'm just like the rats on the rabbit where we're hamster wheels, whatever. But it works. And uh, so I think that everybody is, if they can do exercise, it's a wonderful thing to do. So number one, how can I help my symptoms? Make sure you're exercising and lift weights if, if that's accessible. Figure out how to do strength training. Yep, strength training as best you can. And, you know, I had no idea when I started doing it. So I'd worked out with a trainer for, I don't know, 20 sessions or 30 sessions, whatever. So I figured out what to do. And I basically adapted those over the course of time. I love that. Okay. So let's say then we are strength training, um, but I, we need more. So before we get to HRT, let's talk about some natural things that people might be able to just do over the counter. There are a number of natural products that I think that do help. We have a couple of problems along those lines. First of all, the North American Menopause Society, which is an excellent resource, by the way, for our listeners, menopause.org, excellent resource, um, basically, unfortunately, does not endorse or believe in any herbal-type products. And part of the problem is, unfortunately, the herbal products, many of them made in the United States, if not most, leave a lot to be desired. Um, there is, unfortunately, a lot of crap out there. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of this crap is endorsed by some famous people, um, which is also bad, but that's another story. Um, and so I tend to go more with European products where they are much better checked out. I mean, in Germany, for example, they have an FDA sort of thing for herbal products. Okay. So if you get a German product, a Swiss product, et cetera, it's more likely to be something that's reliable and has to be sort of their own FDA sort of testing first. Um, so I have data to back that up. So anyway, so I tend to go with a couple of my favorite products. I've used a product called Remy Femin for years, um, and that's a German black cohosh product. Uh, it's And part of the issue is one of my subspecialty areas, I hate to say subspecialty, but whatever, is uh, dealing with menopause for cancer survivors. I run a clinic at the Smilo Cancer Center for folks with those issues. And so I've always been interested in things that cancer patients can take. Um, so Remy Femin is one of those products. It's very big in German breast cancer centers, probably the most common prescribed thing in the breast cancer centers. They also make a product called Remy Femin Goodnight, which has some sleep herbs in it. And you can actually get that in the U.S. It's important. You can get them on Amazon. 
Um, and they work reasonably well. So I have people try that oftentimes to see if that'll work for them. Um, there's another product from Sweden, again, where they regulate things reasonably well, a product called Relizin, that's R-E-L-I-Z-E-N, which is a, a Swedish pollen extract, um, which works reasonably well. It takes a little bit longer to kick in in general than the Remy, but it works reasonably. Do I have some people taking both? Yeah, I do. Um, and I get reasonable results with both. So if somebody says, yeah, I really don't think I need meds or I really don't want to take meds, I'll say, let's give these a try, see what they do for you. And sometimes that'll be more than enough of what they need. They're fine. They're totally fine. If somebody said, no, no, I need more. I'm still pretty uncomfortable. You're okay. Then I lead the discussion to, well, we have hormonal interventions and we have non-hormonal medical interventions. And I sound them out as far as what they feel most comfortable with, you know, as far as is their preference towards hormonal issues or their preference to avoid hormones. And, and then I go over the lists of different things that we can offer them. Um, obviously, hormones we may talk about separately, but in the non-hormonal options, if somebody really prefers that, a couple of mainstays are out there. Believe it or not, SSRI or SNRI antidepressants can help with hot flashes. Usually <laughs> much lower doses than we use as antidepressants, but they can be fairly effective. Um, my problem with SSRIs, particularly as SNRIs to a little bit lesser extent, is that unfortunately, many of them can lead to some weight gain and many of them can lead to some decreases in libido. And what are among the most common complaints I hear from my patients coming in is weight gain and decrease in libido. And it's like, do I want to exacerbate those for my ladies? I don't think so. Um, so I try to, you know, try to come up with a, a, a comp, uh, op, options that they can use. Yes, many of the SNRIs can be helpful as well. Um, and then as so another category out there, there is a medication called gabapentin, or its trade name is Neurontin. And of course, as I joked, it cures the common cold too. I mean, it's used for a lot of things. Um, but it also can help with hot flashes. Unfortunately, GABA has some side effects that can make people sedated. It can make people bloated, particularly. So again, if somebody's having trouble sleeping, however, for example, for my cancer patients, some of them have neuropathies. They have nerve pain. Well, gabapentin happens to be good for neuropathy. So maybe I'll say, well, you got neuropathy, you got some sleep issues. Well, let's make you sleep a little bit better. So we'll try it. I mean, I try to get multi-values out of drugs to see if I can get benefits, other benefits for people. So that's the kind of options we think about. There are a couple other more esoteric drugs that are used. Uh, one of the bladder drugs, or as my, my urogynecology friends know, I call them my PP doctor friends. <laughs> some PP drugs that work really well for high flashes, but they're not. Oxybutynin is one of them. So if somebody's having incontinence issues and having high flashes and lunch, right? Okay, that's another option. So you have different medication options which can be used. There happens to be a very good medication on the horizon coming in. It's not officially approved yet. Um, it's a medication called Fezolinitant. Um, and there's another one called Elizinotant, which is coming out after it. Um, but that are non-estrogen and are pretty good high for hot flashes. Unfortunately, like the SSRI antidepressants are probably about 50% as effective as estrogen part. These other newer drugs are better. Um, unfortunately, we don't have it yet. <laughs> uh, Fezolinotant is probably going to be coming to us in the next three, four months, something like that. But it's close. It's, it's not far away. I mean, I've been promising it to my breast cancer patients for about the last four years. <laughs> Anyway, it's like, it's coming, it's coming. Well, it is coming. But anyway, um, <laughs> so it's coming fairly soon. Um, so there are some some hopes on the horizon of medications that are reasonably effective. And then, of course, then there are hormonal options, basically the estrogen option, um, which work for most people. Again, there are a few people who can't take it. I mean, again, many of the oncologists, most oncologists aren't thrilled with their breast cancer patients taking estrogen. 
Um, many cancer people can. I mean, people with bladder cancer can take it. People with colon cancer can take it. People with leukemias can take it. There are a lot of people who can take estrogen. So it's the primary group that can't. And then there are also people who have history of blood clots who can't take it. Now, there are certain groups of folks, but you want to talk to your provider about those options. Hey, friends, quick break to share an awesome offer from our sponsor, Inside Tracker. This series is all about health. It's about prioritizing our personal wellness at every stage of life. Because let's face it, when our physical health is not optimal, everything else starts to fall apart. Remember when my back, my broken back started to get bad and I was eventually just slowly relegated to the couch and standing for 10 minutes and Yeah, I started to get depressed. I mean, this is what happens when our bodies are not obeying us. And the more we can learn about them from the inside out, the better off we're going to be. Inside Tracker makes it easy for you to analyze your body with convenient local or mobile, like at your home, blood draw services. They give you an expert analysis of your biomarkers and suggestions on how to improve them so that you can be the healthiest person you can be in body and, of course, in your mind. So be sure to take advantage of our offer from Inside Tracker to be the best advocate for your own health that you can be. For a limited time, Run This World listeners get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. So visit insidetracker.com forward slash run this world. Make sure you go there. Then they'll know that you found them through me. And if you have any questions, I am here for you. Just email Nicole at NicoleDeBoom.com. I'll get back to you. All right, everybody. That's it for now. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so this is where I want to dig in and go, okay, well, what is HRT and how do I know if it would work for me, right? And one of the, you know, we've been talking a lot about things like hot flashes and some of the physical symptoms um, of menopause, perimenopause. Sleep, we mentioned, you know, you mentioned sleep a few times. I'm actually reading a book called Stolen Focus, by Johan somebody. I'm going to put his name in the notes. Um, and I have to get it back to the library because it's on like somebody else wants it. Like I can't just keep this thing and read it forever. People are wanting this book. And there is a whole chapter about sleep. And they're writing about it um, in regards to how it affects our focus and how our, our whole like society is becoming much more ADD prone, you know, largely due to electronics and, you know, different things than we're talking about. But I'm feeling like that myself more now in the past year or two. And I'm wondering if I'm sleeping pretty badly. Let me just put that out there. Like I wake up a lot. I sweat a lot in my sleep. Sometimes it's drenched. Sometimes I wake up enough to throw the covers off. You know, but I'm rolling around constantly and probably never hitting um, REM, full on REM sleep. And I don't wake up feeling great pretty much ever. And, um, you know, in this book, it's funny because you talked about um, uh, like follicle, like ovary. What was something about the poop? You had a poop. Ovaries pooping out. Yes. Yes. The ovaries were pooping out. 
Well, in this book, they talk about how at night they used to think of sleep as a passive function, but then they studied it more and they were like, well, during sleep, your brain clears out all the non-needed cell poop, cellular poop out of your brain. It's like you you have to clear the brain poop out. They literally say that. It's like a brain poop dump. So mm-hmm. funny. And when you never hit those levels of sleep that you need, your brain is never able to clear them out. Thus, mm-hmm. you wake up feeling less refreshed and, and and not able to focus. And just I feel like this all ties in together because one of the big things affecting most of us for many years, five years or more during this time is that we just don't sleep as well. And when we wake up, our brains go into anxiety mode, like things that didn't used to happen. So, uh, you know, um, where am I going with this? I guess where I'm going with Yeah, you go ahead. I heard you're about to tag on to something here. Tell me what you're thinking. Sleep is crucial. And again, one of the things, and again, I can't tell I, my medical students, my residents say, I don't know the answer. Nobody does. The question is, are a lot of the cognitive issues related to the fact that we're not sleeping well, or is it a direct issue of lack of estrogen? And the answer is, I don't know how you really prove it. Now, a couple of people, like Hadeen Jaffe, for example, who's a sleep expert, and I must say, and Hadeen knows I say this, even though she's at Harvard, she's a very nice person. So <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. Anyway, um, but she's a good person. Well, I mean, yeah, what can I say? So anyway, um, I get it. She's done some work um, basically using sleeping pills to say, okay, if I buy somebody some sleep, will they feel better? And the answer is, yeah, they do. They may not feel as well as if they had some hormonal medication on board, but they still, just by virtue of sleeping, they may get feel better about their their moods and stuff like that. So there was some benefit from just getting some sleep. So that's a crucial issue. Uh, now, of course, estrogen will help you sleep in general. And okay. By giving you sleep, it may help your brain restore itself and things like that, so you will feel better. But even if you get some sleep other ways, it'll probably help you feel better too. You know, I think this is all, it all is just sort of like adding up to the fact that, yes, there is no perfect test to say I am a candidate to add estrogen into my, you know, regimen right now. But all of my symptoms, all of my signs, the way I'm feeling daily, what my spouse or partner is, um, you know, experiencing, all of those things put together say, why not try it? And That's the way I look at it in general. Yeah. And if somebody's feeling X, Y, or Z, you know, some some symptoms, like they're not sleeping or they're feeling depressed or they're feeling moody and stuff like that. And the question is, is this menopause or is this something else? Because the other thing to remember is what's going on in a person's life when she's around 50, you know, late 40s, early 50s and stuff like that. And I've done a lot of lectures to lay audiences. And I know what lines of mine can generate a good laugh. And I try to be like a good comic and remember what lines people like. And one of my favorite ones is when, you know, people are, you know, late 40s, early 50s, kids are oftentimes leaving home. And then I look at the audience and say, and even worse coming. That sure, totally. Laugh. You know, ah, yeah, you're right. Um, and then they're coming back with their, their, themselves, their kids, their dogs, their stepdogs, you know, or, you know, grand dogs, whatever. You know, you got all this stuff moving into your house. And then you're not only dealing, you're dealing with work issues for yourself, you're dealing with your partner's work issues, people not really like, you know, older employees that they're going to have to pay more, God forbid, you know, things like that. And then there's the whole next level with the sandwich generation. You're dealing with your mother's ills or your father's ills and you're dealing with them. 
And then again, even worse, your mother-in-law, you know, it's bad enough taking care of your mom, but you're taking care of your mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. You've got all this stuff going on and you can't say this person is just dealing with menopause. She's dealing with all the rest of the stuff that she's got to deal with. And that can be very hard. But what I oftentimes say to somebody, because look, she's helped. I mean, you know, somebody who has a whole bundle of medical problems, no, you have to have those evaluated and she may not be a candidate for estrogen. Many people are, but many, you know, some are not. And for example, I'll often say, let me plant the patch on you. The reason I tend to say, let me plant an estrogen patch as opposed to a pill. An estrogen pill has a very, very, very slight increased risk of blood clots. Okay. Minimal, but it's there. Whereas a patch tends to have no increased risk of clots, you know, in general. So I'm not doing anything really bad to them. And I can put in writing, you know, people who are going to get breast cancer from this. I can put in writing, you are not going to get breast cancer in two months of estrogen. Trust me. Yeah. And so I'll say, just put this patch on for two months. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Okay. Now, we know that long term, we can't give what we call unopposed estrogen to women. Women who have a uterus, that if we give them estrogen long term, we can cause overgrowth of lining of the uterus. And that's where this progesterone or progestins, which are synthetic progesterones, come in. We have to antagonize the growth. And... uh for example, somebody who I'm going to suggest to you, who has a department that's respectable because she's the head of the chair- chairman in Colorado, is Nanette Santoro is her name. She's the chairman of OBGYN University of Colorado um, and a solid citizen there. Um, and Dr. Santoro always says when she teaches her patients, she said, oh, I view estrogen like fertilizer. I think the uterus is a one. And estrogen is fertilizer and progesterone is the one more. Okay, makes sense to me. It's a perfectly good thing. So that's courtesy of your chairman in Colorado. I love it. <laughs> but the situation is somebody's not going to get cancer in the uterus from two months of unopposed estrogen. So I'll say, well, see what happens to you after two months. You feel better, you don't feel better. If this is not, I'm just as miserable as ever. Well, maybe it's not estrogen. You know, maybe something else is going on, be it physical or psychological, but just not a menopausal issue. Whereas if somebody says, oh, this is fabulous. I'm the most wonderful person in my sight. You know, fabulous. This is terrific. You know, okay. Well, then we explore, should, you know, is she going to continue with it? Now, some people will say, I feel fabulous. This is the most wonderful I felt in the last uh, three years, but I'm not going to take it because I'm convinced I'm going to get breast cancer from. Well, we yes. discuss those issues, but at least she knows what's causing her problems. Even if she chooses not to continue with it, she can say, okay, it's not this. It's not this. I just, my body is, this is menopause. Okay, this is all so good. Let's um let's pause for a minute and talk about that I'm calling it a myth um that came from the is it 1991 WHI study. Um well, the conception of WHI was 91. The study got stopped in 2002. Okay. But I hate to say it there were very many concerns about breast cancer before the WHI ever came out. Okay, so I read about this in that New York Times article where um, she wrote about the fact that this study was being done. Everyone was really excited about it. And then a finding or two came in and then it was like broadcast out kind of um, like you're playing telephone. Like it just got exaggerated and there were un kind of unfounded fears. And then they shut the the study down, and then they decided menopause wasn't even worth teaching in medical school. Did I, like, summarize that accurately? A summary there. Yeah, a couple things for our listeners, though, to remember. There were two arms of the Women's Health Initiative study. There were women who had a uterus in place who were taking 
be uh, fertilizer and lawnmower. They were taking estrogen and progesterone. If you have had a hysterectomy, you don't have to take progesterone because there's no lawnmower. You don't have to take any progesterone. Just take estrogen. And we knew that there was difference in health effects of estrogen alone versus estrogen plus progesterone, which is why this study was divided into two groups. Um, interestingly enough, the estrogen alone arm, women who've had a hysterectomy who just have to take estrogen, never showed an increased risk of breast cancer. They actually showed a slight decreased risk of breast cancer, not an increased risk. The increased risk that was shown in the estrogen plus progesterone arm, progestin arm, I should say, was very small, very small increased risk. And basically, um, the increased risk, and it was really only seen after about five years worth of therapy. And many women just take the transient for a couple of years to get the yuckiest parts. But even if you took it, uh, basically, the increased hazard after five years of therapy, um, the baseline rate, because breast cancer is a very common disease, unfortunately, that the baseline rate in the population was about 30 per 10,000 women per year of women who would be diagnosed with breast cancer. In the women who were taking estrogen plus progestin, the incidence was about 38 per 10,000 women per year. So the fancy word that scientists use is what's called the attributable risk. How much of the risk can we say was caused by the estrogen as opposed to the disease itself? You know, people getting it because, pardon my English for your issue, people think shit happens. Bad things can happen to people, and unfortunately they do. And, you know, the vast majority of my patients who are diagnosed with breast cancer have never been near an estrogen molecule outside after menopause. I mean, they just know they, they weren't. And the majority of people have not. So what we call the attributable risk is about 8 per 10,000 women per year. Okay. Now, I have to evaluate that with my patients. And if somebody says, that's the most horrible number I ever heard in my life. I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to have to say, you know, being every time I swallow my estrogen pill, I don't want her taking any estrogen. I don't want her terrified. I'm going to go to other things I can offer her. Okay. But if somebody says to me, you mean I can feel great and my risk increased hazard ratio for my life is like eight per attributable risk is eight per 10,000 women per year. And I don't have to face all the rest of these miserable symptoms if I take that, you know, sign me on. Okay. Fine. You know, but I want to do what makes my patient comfortable. And I've got other options that we can do to help her. So if somebody says, I'm terrified of estrogen, well, we'll go the you know other routes. We have other things to offer them. But if somebody says, you know, I really feel great on this estrogen and I want to keep going with it, okay. You know, it's a safe thing for them to do. Cool. Okay. So for somebody who's afraid that they may have some kind of risk going in, what do they need to talk to their doctor about? The fact that they're concerned about this risk. That's it. <laughs> That's and then they can share why and their doctor can do any tests that are valid and figure it out. Okay. Absolutely. Great. So, okay. Here's another symptom. And so anyway, this was actually really helpful. Before I get to another symptom, one thing that blew me away was that it sounds like in the medical field, they were talking about menopause and then they stopped talking about menopause with doctors and yeah. training menopause, right? Yeah, what happened was a perfect storm, unfortunately. And we can't take one event and say, this is what happened. At the same time that the Women's Health Initiative came out in 2002, we were actively trying to cut residency hours. Well, I must confess, I wasn't, but everybody else was. <laughs> I'm like, you'll suffer for four years, shut up. Um, but anyway, um, that they cut residency hours. When I was a kid, when I was a little kid, we about 120 hours a week in the hospital. That was our standard. You know, that's what you did. And, you know, 
was tired sometimes. I must confess, I was tired sometimes. Um, sometimes I got some sleep. And so the key thing is that there was a movement to cut the residency hours. I understand where it comes from. I may be sounding facetious at times here, but you know, it's, it's tough for a lot of people. So they cut the residency hours to about 80 hours a week. But the problem is they didn't extend the length of the residency. So you went from four years at 120 hours a week to four years at 80 hours a week. You had to cut something. And if you're training an OBGYN, it's hard to cut, well, how to do a hysterectomy, a good thing to your patients. And it's hard to say, well, let's teach you not how to deliver a baby. Well, that's not a good thing. So there are a lot of skills that you have to learn, and you can't cut those. Okay. So what became cuttable was medicalized education. And it was like, well, we're not going to prescribe this hormone stuff to people anymore, so why bother? Okay. So we stopped teaching that. <laughs> wow. And that's and the rest is history. So what happened is, and one of my buddies, uh, I, I always quote my, my friend Wen Shen's paper that came out in 2013 in menopause, and they surveyed menopause um, residency programs. They surveyed OBGYN residency programs throughout the United States and Canada. And discovered that basically 20% of them had a formal menopause curriculum. 80% did not. So what happened is from 2002 when the WHI came out, as Susan Dominus talks about, till 2022, whatever, 20 years, um, you know, I don't blame the residents for not learning about menopause. I mean, I tried to teach them all as best I could, but, you know, they, they really had very little exposure to menopause. So if you go to a doctor who finished his or her residency program between 2002 and 2022, whatever, hell, um, they oftentimes don't know very much menopause management because they weren't taught it. Right. Yes. And but are they changing that now? Are we starting to teach menopause again? I think we are. <laughs> I've always tried to teach it as best I can. Oh. I'm having more time spent for teaching menopause. I do. I do. Well, yeah, because, you know, all of your patients will go through menopause if they're women. Some of your patients may have a hysterectomy or, you know, cancers or whatever, but all of them will go through this phase of life. Yeah, exactly. Um, Some people won't have a baby, but God willing, you live long enough, you're going to go through menopause. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so in um, in the article that we keep referencing, I did learn that there are a couple of businesses that bill themselves as online prescribers of estrogen or other things. So I actually went on one of them and I signed up and told them my symptoms. And I said, my symptoms are largely brain fog. Like that is my biggest symptom. I'm sweating a little more. I'm stinkier than normal. Like, oh my God, deodorant has been... That's a whole nother battle, finding a deodorant that works now. Um, but they, they, I got a result and it was like, great, you can have this because of hot flashes. And I was like, that's not what I said. I said, brain fog. So can I really get this prescription? Because they didn't address what was my symptom. So number one, you know, my point is, I think, those may be great businesses and may be able to help women on a larger scale to, you know, get more access if their doctors won't work with them and won't prescribe. As I've heard, some doctors are very hesitant to do this. Um, but I also felt like there is some work to do because I felt uncomfortable. Like I'm like, I'm not going to get that prescription because they didn't actually address this and there's no way for me to talk to them about it. So I guess my point to you is both... How do you feel about those kind of companies? 
but also would estrogen potentially help me with brain fog? Well, that's an excellent question. And the answer is that it might. Yeah, okay. However, it is not a quote unquote official indication for hormone replacement therapy. If you read the, and, and, and people can go to this the website's called menopause.org, which is the website of the North American Menopause Society. And two things about it. I believe that, that civilians can download the 2022 hormone therapy guidelines. Um, certainly docs can from the website, but I think, I think people can download it too. Um, but the other thing you can also do on menopause.org is to find a menopause provider near you. You plug in your zip code, they'll get you a menopause provider. Somebody who's interested and knows about menopause. And that's a good thing because you can get an idea, you know, somebody to communicate with, you know, you can, you won't be just left there high and dry. So that, those are good things there. But if you look at the official indications for hormone therapy, the official indications are relief of vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, which is why we have to say hot flashes a lot of the time. Um, relief, uh, prevention of osteoporosis. We haven't talked about bone health and all of other issues, but it does help prevent osteoporosis. That's never been disputed. Also for relief of vaginal symptoms, vaginal dryness, et cetera, uh, when somebody needs something more than just a vaginal estrogen cream. Okay. And there now is another official indication, which is for women who go through what we call premature ovarian failure or premature menopause, women who go through menopause before the age of 50, substantially before the age of 50, to help prevent bone loss, brain, brain, brain deadness, um, uh, other issues, heart disease. Those are the kinds of things we for know that if very young women are not given estrogen help, we they will be dealing with that more often. So, but a lot of these other indications aren't official indications. Now, does that mean that though that this stuff doesn't help? No. Okay. It's just an it's not an official indication. Well, because like we said, it could be, hey, it's gonna help me sleep better, therefore I'm gonna wake up and I'm going to have a clearer mind. Correct. Exactly. And I may be able to exactly. think better and Correct. think of words that I Correct. can't think of right now. <laughs> Right. Now, there's a fair amount of research being done also on the brain fog issue. And is it, or people talk about executive function, diminution, things like that. Um, and that menopause can contribute to those. And actually, the woman who is the chairman of psychiatry in Colorado, University of Colorado, uh, is a woman named Neil Epperson. And Neil was a buddy of mine when she was at Yale, and she's a smart lady. Um, and she's, and you can read some of her stuff online. I mean, it's published in, you know, you can access it through the lay, lay portals and stuff like that. You don't have to go to, to PubMed to get it. Oh, it's pretty clear stuff. And she basically sort of feels that a lot of the menopausal symptoms are sort of like ADD, that it's executive function loss and variations of a theme of ADD. And she treats a lot of these women with neural type drugs, you know, things of that nature, which can be helpful. Um, I'm not saying they can't be. So some of those are things to explore. I must confess, I tend to think of the world in estrogen-coated glasses. So I'm, I will often go to estrogen first to say, does this help? Okay. Um, and if it helps, great. That's fabulous. If it doesn't, though, I think, think talking to a psychiatrist, because as I tell my patients, you know, as far as they all want me to prescribe every drug known to mankind, and I'll say, I will match my knowledge of hormone therapy with, and I won't say I'm better, but I would say I probably know as much as most people in the country. But I certainly don't know the psych meds. And you want to have a real psychiatry person prescribing those um, because they will know ins and outs of these drugs. I don't. You know, yes. pretty. But anyway, but certainly, as I said, I tend to go for estrogen first and see if it helps. And if it does, fabulous. If it doesn't, you then say to the psychiatrist, and you know, I've been there, done that, I tried the estrogen. Yeah. So, so let's say you need to know about. 
Yes, absolutely. And the fact that it is a multi-pronged approach with there are, you know, psychological issues that are going to come along with this time, not just physical issues, and they go hand in hand. Absolutely. And women who have had a major depressive disorder, you know, okay, the perimenopausal transition bumps that risk up threefold. Oh, wow. Another, another depressive episode in that. Yes. Okay. And as some of my guests on the podcast have also mentioned that, that depression can come roaring in or roaring back, even from very early in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's pretend that you planted a patch on me and I'm riding with it. I'm ro- rolling along. I'm feeling good. When do I take it? Like, how does, do I do it forever? When does it come off? What do I do here? First of all, if somebody's got a universe, we would add some progesterone after a bit to make sure they can continue to use it. The question how long to use it is totally up in the air. You're okay. Um, some people will do it for five years um, because the original WHI studies, et cetera, showed this increased risk of breast cancer after five years of therapy, et cetera. Very slight increased risk. But they'll say, okay, five years is fine. Five years in one day is um, okay. That's the way they believe. Um I must confess, to me, and this is a term that I hate, I despise this term, and people look at me and they say, but you're the ultimate person who believes this. I said, yeah, but I hate the term. It's called shared decision-making. And I, what my thing is, that's called being a good doctor or being a good healthcare provider, that it's not my decision. I mean, if somebody's bleeding to death, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll encourage them to let me operate like that. Please let me operate because you're going to die of the um, But in general... Most decisions are shared decision-making. It's the patient with me, and I can help guide her, but it's ultimately her decision. So the way I look at it is I can give her pluses and minuses, and she makes a decision. If she wants to go off, I'm here to help her go off. I must confess, I seldom say to somebody, okay, it's time for you to go off of estrogen. I very rarely say that. The patient, if she's going off, is usually the one deciding. You know, and I think that all comes around to the fact that we need to really tap into who we are. We need to be able to listen to our bodies and we need to be able to step back every once in a while and take stock and just say, like, where am I today? You know, how do I feel today compared to 12 months ago? And I don't think we do that enough. So that's really important. But many of the women listening to this show are athletes. And I will say, I think athletes have an advantage in the listening to your body category. We seem to be more tuned in to to the nuances. Um, okay. So then magically, five years down the road, voila, I am now menopausal. I've had 12 months without a period. Now, how do I feel? What happens next? Like, am I just back to normal or what do we expect at that point? Don't know. <laughs> what I can tell you is that hot flashes do tend to get better over the course of time. Sleep probably will get better. Mood changes probably will stabilize over the course of time. Um, so the hot flashes do tend to get better. Average duration, 7.4 years on the hot flashes. About 10% of women, unfortunately, will have hot flashes that persist 10 years or more. I have to be honest and say that. Whoa, I did not know that. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the truth. I, I try to hide it, but I can't. <laughs> so they're out there. And if there are some people who are getting persistent hot flashes, they may like to stay on their therapy for longer. And that's fine. I mean, I'm here to guide them and to give them guidance. Um, but again, it's a very individualized decision with, you know, to make with your provider's guidance. Okay, so let's um 
we have really gotten the the run. We, we've we're on like a marathon right now or something. I don't know, but I've I'm understanding, and I think somebody who's listening to this can say, okay, I get what I'm facing or what I'm up against, and you know, learning to embrace it is going to probably be the trick to surviving this positively. So as we start to wrap up, I was thinking we could uh, give our listeners some positive things. And from your perspective, what do you think are the best parts of menopause? Um, well, several things. We'll get, I mean, the other thing that we haven't really addressed is the fact that as we're getting, going through menopause, we are getting older. And we are in a society that tends not to revere age. Um, so there are all those conflicting issues. Um, I was actually sort of, not, not upset at all about turning 70. I was like, that's cool. And the reason I'm not concerned about turning 70 or I was not concerned is that I know that many people believe at that point they can speak their mind more frankly. And every time my friends were laughing at me, they said, you never give it a damn about that anyway. Why do you care? And I say, but now I'm legit. I can say whatever I want. Um, so I like that part. Um, and people don't like it. That's their purpose. <laughs> but I've always considered that the case. Um, so, but age is an issue. Uh, and, you know, if somebody embraces it and says, I'm cool, I can do whatever I want, that's fine. Or you know, obviously taking care of yourself, then it's good. For certain women, menopause itself is a boom. You know, okay, true boom. For example, if somebody has fibroids, big fibroids that are bleeding all the time, or she's got significant endometriosis given her pain, menopause is the best thing in the world that will ever happen to her because her fibroids will shrink. She can stop bleeding. Her endometriosis pain rates can get better. So these people love menopause in general. The other thing, there are women who belong to some religious sects or something like that that don't let them practice contraception. And they're always worried about getting pregnant. And this is a word to the wise here. You can get pregnant until you go that magic year without a period. And I personally have delivered three women who were 47 at the time of delivery. And these were not uh, infertility in vitro patients. These were, oops, you know, these were three oops pregnancies. So, and that's not the Guinness Book of Records. So anyway, um, so you do want to be practicing contraception if you don't want to get pregnant. Um, so neither one, none of these ladies. <laughs> so the key thing is for, for people who really are terrified of getting pregnant, but, you know, they, they belong to a religion that doesn't let them use contraception or something like that. Well, this may be a blessing for them. So the thing is there are certain women who really will welcome, you know, menopause. And they're, it's not a trivial number. Um for the other ones who are having issues, problems, I mean, if somebody's major problem, and again, I said the hot flashes do tend to get better, which they do. Unfortunately, the vaginal dryness tends to get worse over the course of time. Um, so, and some people don't even recognize it as a menopausal problem because it happens way after they've had their last period. So anyway, um, but that's one thing that does tend to get worse, but we can address that with vaginal estrogen. So if somebody doesn't want to take systemic estrogen, I got plenty of stuff in the vagina. That's no problem. I can take care of that. Um, so it's very individual. Depends on what the person wants to do and, and what she's feeling like. You know what? I've got an, a positive. No more money on sanitary, you know, no female sanitary products. products. Hello. Absolutely. No more money on that stuff. No question about it. And that's a plus. And no more ruined underwear. Correct. Correct. Although maybe other things may happen as we get older, but well, at least well, from your period. It's not anyway. You know, Mary Jane, the work you do is so important. You're so great. You, you know, here's the thing, though. I think what my impression and one of the things that probably makes you an incredible doctor is that 
you don't seem to carry judgment. You you approach the people who come to you with just an open mind and let me help you solve your problem. And I think so many people keep their problems to themselves because they are afraid of being judged. And that is a wonderful gift and um, what I hope we all can do for each other through this time in life. And I hope people can. And, uh, you know, again, and you want to find the can probably people. So what's the most important thing going through menopause? Yes. Exercise. Yes, of course. But also finding a caregiver that you can relate to and that you trust and you can talk to her, talk to him about it. Um, and I hate to say it just because somebody's a woman doesn't make her a great caregiver. I hate to say that. <laughs> there's some pretty bad female docs that I know. And there's some wonderful male doxes, some pretty lousy ones of them too. Gender does not, you know, one or the other. Um, so, but you want to be somebody you can trust. The other thing is there are many, many nurse midwives, PAs, nurse practitioners who are terrific. Okay. And if they've had the appropriate training, great. You know, and the other thing about the, you know, other healthcare providers is that they may have more time to spend with you. And time, of course, these days in the medical world is of the essence as far as, you know, and the doc may be able to spend five or eight minutes with you. Um, you know, and, uh, certain health plans that allow the doc to spend no more than five to eight minutes with you. Terrible. Um, whereas the nurse practitioner, the PA may be able to spend 15 or 20 minutes with you and you may get yes. a lot more visits. So you want to be with somebody you can feel comfortable that you can relate to that you can check with. Those are all important. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, let's, uh, I'm going to let you get back to helping real life women. You've just helped, um, thousands of women over the airwaves. Um, but I am going to ask you the final question that I ask every guest that comes on the show. Are you ready? I'm Are you ready? Pressure's on. Okay. If if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Well, probably number one would be be kind to yourself. Probably that would be the most important thing. Um, don't expect miracles, you know, and things like that from yourself. You know, just be normal. Um, and if it's a, like a, a physical thing or a recommended treatment or something like that, exercise. Exercise is far and away. If I had to pick one thing to say for people to do, exercise. Get moving, do stuff. You'll feel a lot better. It- awesome. And I agree with both of those. Thank you so much. You are amazing. Hardly. Thank you so much for asking me to be with you. And thank you for caring for, I won't say just ladies, Karen, caring for all your folks listening and uh, for helping. That's great, Nicole. That's terrific. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for your time today, for listening to us banter about this topic that is so important to every woman who lives long enough to go through it because we all do. For more on Mary Jane Minkin and the work she continues to put out into the world, definitely check out madamovery.com. You can access podcast videos, read her blog, and more. And you can also contact her there if you have any questions or happen to be in the New Haven area and would like to try to get in and actually meet with her one-on-one. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day, and we will see you next time.